And I would like to ask you to turn in your Bibles, page 1138 this morning, page 1138. That's uh, Isaiah chapter 49. <clears throat> and uh, during the season of Lent, we are looking at these later chapters of the book of Isaiah, some of them including uh, the songs of the servant, the suffering servant. And we said last week one of our goals during Lent is to learn more about this Jesus that we follow, that we love, and also learn more about what it means to be His followers. And so, uh, we're looking at uh, what's often referred to as the second servant song in Isaiah this morning, Isaiah 49. We'll read the first uh, 16 verses, and I invite you to keep your Bibles open again this morning as, uh, as we go through the text. That may help, uh, help with our understanding of, of what's written here in Isaiah. <clears throat> Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, He has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of His hand, He hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles." that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and rise up, princes will see and bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says, in the time of my favor, I will answer you, and in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Ashwan. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. For the Lord comforts His people and will have compassion on His afflicted ones. 
But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. There ends the reading of God's Word. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, how much is too much? How much is too much? How far is too far? Um, Think of a person like Elon Musk, one of the richest people in the world, owns many different businesses, but many also question, has he taken on perhaps more than he can handle? When comes the point when he has one too many crowns on his head? He's got all different businesses, right? SpaceX, Tesla, Solar City, a few more companies, and then on top of that, he added Twitter, or X, formerly known as Twitter, which you always wanted to say that. Um, but people wonder, is it too much? Has it become too much, and at one point is it all going to fall in on itself, collapse in on itself. Um, The poster child, I guess, for over-acquiring goes back to the 80s and 90s. It's probably uh, Jack Welsh of of GE. I know that many of you have worked for GE, so you know all about this more than I do. But Welsh often gets credit for, for turning GE around, making it profitable once again. Um, But most would say that he might have taken things too far. He didn't know when to stop. He didn't know when it was more than what he could handle. At one time, he had acquired businesses almost too numerous to count. He built a behemoth that included electric lighting, appliances, plastics, health technology, leasing, reinsurance, derivatives, commercial lending, credit card processing, diesel locomotives, jet engines, water treatment systems, energy delivery, investment banking, and media and entertainment. And it got to the point that it all became too much. And the thing just sort of fell apart and became a memorial to not knowing when to stop. A memorial to mergers and acquisitions, too many of those things. Now, have you ever heard God compared to Elon Musk? Or Jack Welsh? Have you ever heard that perhaps God is too into acquisition? That perhaps his aspirations are a little too high? Have you ever wished that God at one point would just sort of stop and be content? Chances are you might have. And our text today grapples with that very issue, that very question. And it also gives God's response to that question. So let's take a little closer look at Isaiah 49 and see what it has to say to us. Start with verse 1, and here we are again introduced to the servant of the Lord, and, and he speaks. 
Listen to me, this is the servant. Listen to me, you islands or you coastlands, it could be translated. Hear this, you distant nations or, or you faraway peoples, okay? Who is the servant here addressing? Who is the servant addressing there? Well, if you notice, it's not just Israel, is it? <clears throat> He's not addressing just Israel but he's addressing the coastlands and the faraway peoples. In other words, the servant of the message, or the message of the servant is for the world, not just the people of Israel. It goes beyond that. And look how he then describes himself, how the servant describes himself. He is hidden in the hand of Yahweh in verse 2. Hidden in the hand of Yahweh. And then we go on, he's an arrow concealed in God's quiver. In other words, his identity is hidden, it's concealed, he's anonymous. Nobody really notices him, nobody really takes note of him. And as we saw last week, we saw that this servant has been given the work of a king, but not a king's glory or notoriety. And then he describes his feelings, his own feelings about his work. Verse 4, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain. This is a servant who is despondent. He's put in all sorts of effort, but he has nothing to show for it. Now, now ask yourself, why would anyone do this? Why would anyone willingly take on that role of a servant, take up a mission that's, that's hard, that's taxing, that's under the radar, that comes with seemingly few results? This is why. Verse 1, before I was born, the Lord called me. Before I was born, the Lord called me. This servant is called Okay? Now, what does it mean to be called? What is that like exactly? Well, to be called is to have a claim placed on you. To be called is to, give a, is to be given a purpose that, that comes from outside of you and is actually bigger than you. It's hard to explain, but there is, there is to life a certain current, Right? We, we sort of drift along with life. There is a momentum that takes us in a certain direction. It's like being on the lazy river at the Dells, right? You just kind of go with the crowd. To have a call is, is to feel a pull that's powerful and distinct from the natural current of life. Okay, let me say that again. To have a call is to feel a pull that is powerful and it's also distinct from the natural current of life. Let me try and explain that. Think of, think of the GPS system in your car, all right? I was recently uh, driving down south and I got in that, that St. Louis region and um, um, all of my being was telling me to go left, okay? My head was telling me to go left. My heart was telling me to go left. 
All of the signs that announced my destination were telling me to go left, but my GPS was telling me to go right, and she sounded so sure of herself. Have you ever been in that situation where all of your being is kind of telling you to go one way and then there's this other voice that you're used to listening to, you're used to having guide you and it's telling you something different? Guess which way I went? I followed the GPS. I went right. And I wound up in exactly the wrong place and spent the next 20 minutes trying to recover and get back to my, to my route. Life has a GPS guiding us. It's sort of a GPS guiding system to it. And it tells us exactly where to go. And it says, this is the way to success. And, and this is the way to happiness. And, and this is the way to pain avoidance. And this is the way to go if you want to survive. And this is the route to your dreams. And, and this is the way that, that everyone else is going. This is the way that you should go. And that GPS is a powerful, powerful force in our lives. And it's, quite frankly, the voice that we often listen to. And then there's the call of God which is distinct from that voice. The call of God doesn't seem to care about success or happiness or pain avoidance. It cares about other things. And yet we feel that call with all of our being, that call to something different, to something greater, that call to be fully possessed, 100% possessed by God. Okay? That's a call. That's what your call is. That force that says, be God's. Be all in. And this is what the servant felt. This is what the servant felt. God said, yours is going to be a ministry of hiddenness and doubt and unbelief. There will be times when it seems like everything is working against you, like you are struggling in vain, like you have nothing to show for all of your labor. Your followers, they will be the kind of people who, who believe one moment and the next moment they're full of doubt. The difference maker is this you will know that you are serving me. That you are hidden in my hand. Hidden in my quiver. You will know that you are called, that you are claimed, and that I cannot fail you. Friends, the servant was called, okay? And when the servant showed up in Jesus... He called others, didn't he? In fact, he called us. And by the power of his Spirit, we still feel his call upon us from birth to death, right? All the way through, we feel his call. There is no break 
when it's time to go to college. There's no sabbatical when we have our children and we need a little time to raise them. There's no, you know, doesn't go into retirement at the age of 65. That call is there. Birth until death. It is always there. Follow me, says Jesus. Follow me. The servant is called. The servants of the servant are called. But let's look at what the servant was called to do. Okay, that's what comes next. Look at verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed you in the womb to be his servant, basically he says this, Your job is to bring Jacob back. To bring Jacob back to God. To gather Israel to himself. There we have it. That's the servant's task. It's to bring Israel back to God. No small task, friends. No small task. For one, she had to be brought back physically. She's scattered among the nations. She's in captivity right now. But more than that, she has to be brought back spiritually. And the entire Old Testament tells us how difficult a task that has been, right? And right now, Jacob is in Babylon because of her sin. She's not there randomly. It's not because there was just some nation that was more powerful than Israel. She's there because God is punishing her for her sin. Now it's the servant's job to bring Jacob back. But then you get to verse 6. And here's where I want you to think about Jack Welsh. Because God says it is too small a thing. Actually, the Hebrew says it's too light a thing. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob. That's not enough. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, what's God saying there? God is saying, look, I'm not stopping at Jacob. I want all of it. I want all of it. He's saying, I will not be content with one piece of the pie. I want the whole pie. I want all the peoples of the earth to be mine. And more than that, I want the whole earth to be mine. It's my creation. I made it. I want it back. All of it. And you have a picture here, I think, of God's greed, God's lust for more. God has, has already said even to His own people in the book of Isaiah, He said, Woe to you who add house to house and field to field until there's no room for anyone else in the land. But here He seems to be going against His own advice and He's saying, It's not enough for me to have Jacob. I don't just want Israel. Now I want Egypt and Nigeria and Ethiopia. I want Italy and Greece. I want China and Korea. I want all of it. I will not stop until I have everything. But of course, this isn't some kind of common unholy greed, is it? This is holy greed. This isn't Jack Welsh with his limited mind and limited resources. This is Yahweh who sits in the heavens and anything less than everything 
would be less than His glory demands. Anything less than everything would be less than His glory demands. Friends, this is our God, and this is the call of the servant. It's to bring God's salvation to the very ends of the earth. Paul put it this way in his letter to the Ephesians. He said the goal is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. He says it a different way in Colossians. God was pleased through Jesus to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. The goal is is not to stop until all things have been reconciled to Himself, every last square inch. Now, this is where I have to ask you and me, do we have a problem with that? Are God's aspirations too high in your mind? You ever wish that he would just stop? That he would just be content? That he would just say, you know, I've got enough now. I'll just sort of take care of what I have. You ever wish he would just be content with the 99 and forget about that last one? I mean, it's just one, right? It's just one. Before we answer and before we give the easy answer, I want you to hear Israel's response. First, there's a little more buildup, I guess, in the text. God says, through my servant, I am going to bring all people back. Look at verse 13. He says, on that day, the heavens and the earth will rejoice. That's, that's poetry, really. When the heavens and the earth are mentioned, it means the heavens and the earth and everything in between. Everything that's here will rejoice. Even the mountains are going to burst into song. The mountains are going to sing. One commentator said, singing is a picture of entering with joy upon benefits for which one has done absolutely nothing. In other words, the Lord has done it all and the only response we can have is to sing. And here the whole earth is summoned to sing to the Lord, to celebrate what God has done through His servant, God's salvation, His redemption will be over every square inch of His creation. And now listen to Israel's response. Verse 14, how do they respond? But Zion said, Yahweh has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. We talk about throwing a wet rag on a celebration. What's going on here? The Lord has forgotten me. In a certain sense, I would call this oldest child syndrome. You know what that is, right? The oldest child is born, has the full attention of mom and dad, and then that second child comes along and it's like, oh boy, I've got I've to give up some of my attention and the love that I was getting, Right? All of a sudden, he has to share, and he doesn't like it. And friends, speaking as a youngest child, I just, I just want to say, you know, get over it, all of you oldest children. 
just get over it. It's not a beautiful thing. So there is much in this text that could almost be the basis, I think, for Luke 15 and Luke's story of the parable of the, the lost son. If you read through this text, what's, what's the lost son? The son takes his, his father's goods, right? And he goes away where? To a far off distant land. And then he returns to this huge celebration and his father, you know, runs out to him and wraps his arms around him and rejoices at his return and calls for everyone around him to rejoice and have a party. And then, then you run into this older brother and what's he doing? He's sulking. You never threw me a party. And it just doesn't fit, right? It just doesn't look good, but it's there. But we can't be too hard on Israel either, can we? I mean, where are they when this news is announced? When God says, hey, my salvation is going to go to the ends of the earth. I'm going to save all the nations of the world, even your enemies. Where is Israel at that time? They're in captivity. I mean, they're not home. They're not in a familiar place. They can't run, run to the drugstore on the corner when they need cough medicine for the kids. They're in captivity themselves. No one is coming to save them. When was the last time they spent some good time in the land of the Lord? It's hard to be, you know, too negative about them. And friends, let's get real. Aren't we more like Israel than we care to admit? I mean, how many times have you perhaps thought, and you can be honest here, why is the preacher always talking about evangelism? I mean, we have our own problems right here. Why don't we, why don't we talk about how I lost my job last week? Why don't we talk about my doubts? Why don't we talk about my diagnosis? Why doesn't the preacher ever say something about what a good husband should be like because my husband needs to hear it? And why do we have to hear about justice you know, for people that we don't even know? When I'm not treated fairly at work or anywhere else in life, and why bring up, you know, creation care issues? Aren't we talking about the minutiae of faith now? I mean, who really cares? Who really cares about recycling? I mean, what does that have to do with the gospel? And, and, and who cares about climate change? You know, when your daughter wants to run away with somebody she met online. Don't we get that? Doesn't God get that? And we have our own problems, our own concerns. Doesn't it ever seem like God should just stop? That he should look less at the ends of the earth and, and mine the store right in front of him? Doesn't it seem like maybe he should focus a little more on Jacob and solve his problems 
make sure his own house is in order before he goes out telling everybody else how they should live their lives? Do we really have to care about every square inch? I mean, there's a lot of square inches that I could care less about. Now, friends, I think those are perfectly fair questions. Those are fair questions. At the same time, I think it would be totally fair if God were to respond by saying, you know what, can't you ever think about someone besides yourselves? Must you always be so petty, so self-centered, so selfish? Don't you care about anyone else? Can't you see that my glory demands more? That my glory demands everything? And, and can't you see that, that I can love more than one child at a time? That I don't, I don't have to divide up my love between the children. My love gets multiplied so each one is loved. I think it would be totally fair for God to respond that way. But you know what? He doesn't. He doesn't. Look at what he says instead. Verse 16. He says, you say that I've forgotten you? Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? Friends, here we have one of the most intimate and tender images of God's love for his people in all of the Bible. In all of the Bible, God compares himself to a nursing mother and Zion to her child. Now, clearly, I'm not the best person <clears throat> to explain this image to you, but I'm called, <clears throat> so it's hard to get away from that. In fact, I get a little queasy just thinking about these kinds of things. There was a woman in our uh, first congregation um, that was a huge advocate for breastfeeding. Actually, I would probably call her a crusader. And uh, whenever I saw her talking to Jackie, I would just sort of walk in the other direction and avoid the conversation completely. But I have managed to, uh, to learn a couple things about breastfeeding in spite of myself. And the first one is this, spoken like a, a true, typical father. It's much easier on the dad. <clears throat> it's much easier on the dad. <clears throat> Let me give you a scenario. The baby cries out in the middle of the night, okay, hungry. Dad finds it pretty easy just to sleep through the whole thing, right? What about Mom. Mom cannot. And when I say she cannot, it's not because women are just naturally more compassionate or, or better human beings. I'm saying she cannot. A nursing mother cannot just sleep. Why? Because her whole body is invested in that child, right? I mean, when the milk comes in, 
You've got to feed the child. Your whole body is telling you, it's time, it's time. Can you forget the child? No, you cannot forget the child. A husband, a father can. A nursing mother cannot. And that's just the physical side of things, right? Then there's the the entire emotional side. Have you ever noticed how many artists try to capture that that perfect picture of, of the love and the contentment and the satisfaction of a mother nursing her child. Every, every artist is, is after that, that one moment. There is an emotional bond unlike any other human bond. It's, it's like the greatest of human bonds and God says, this is my bond with you. And you ask, can I forget you? No, there's no way I could forget you. And then he even goes on and says, you know, even this greatest of human bonds, it's not perfect. Because yes, even a nursing mother can forget her child. And you say, how? Well, there are all sorts of reasons, right? There might be competing loves. Men, drugs. And then there are things out of our control, right? War. Health issues, poverty. Death. Things that a mother cannot control, that are out of her hands. Can a mother forget Believe it or not, yes, but I will not forget. I will not. I will never forget. And friends, to me, you know, God's tact here is, is, is totally counterintuitive. I mean, the idea that, that somehow in assuring His people that His love will always be with them, He's convinced that somehow this will give them the ability to think beyond themselves and actually think of others. I don't know if I could do that. And then that's not where the message stops here. There's there's one more image that God gives us. He says, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now that's, that's kind of a nice image, isn't it? And and, you know, just about every teenager who's ever wanted a tattoo has, has pointed this verse out to her parents and said, see, even God, even God has tattoos. But like many of our applications like that, out of self-interest, they sort of miss the point. It's often pointed out here that, um, that you know, in the days of Isaiah, some slaves would have the names of their master tattooed on their hands. And it, it showed them, it was always in front of them that they belonged to somebody else, that they were in the service of someone else, their whole being. But here it's not the slaves who have their hands tattooed. Here it's, it's the master. It's the master who has the names of his servants engraved on his hands as if he is the one who serves them. 
and gives all of his being and all of his love to them in their service for their good. And as if that's not enough, the verb that's used here for engraved, it doesn't mean written. And it doesn't even mean tattooed. The word here means cut into or to hack. It means to be engraved in stone as with a chisel. You ever see the end of TV shows or a movie and you see that fist that's holding a a stamp and then this big chisel comes down or this big hammer, bong, bong, and then you lift the stamp and there's the Roman numeral seven there. That's the picture that I have here of God saying, I have you engraved in the palms of my hands. And suddenly that quaint little image doesn't seem so quaint anymore. And you think, who would ever go through that? Why would you allow someone to engrave the names of your servants on your hands? In John chapter 20, just after Jesus' crucifixion, his disciples are hiding in a room somewhere. They're afraid. They feared for their lives. They felt abandoned. Abandoned by Jesus, abandoned by God. They were in a state of shock. They were paralyzed. They didn't know what to do. Pain avoidance was heavy on their minds. They were filled with regret. Why did we ever ignore the GPS? Why did we follow this Jesus? And then... And then Jesus himself comes into the room. And you remember what he did? He showed them his hands. And he said, you're afraid that you've been forsaken by God. That he's forgotten you. And look at my hands. I was forsaken for you so that you would never be forsaken so that your names would always be in front of me so that I can never forget you will always be on my hands and there is no safer place for you to be And then he said this, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Where? To the ends of the earth. Your salvation and your call come from the very same place. From the love of a mother. From the love of God. And friends, 
if we truly understand how much God really loves us, we would be different people. The word God uses is called people. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, your your love is amazing. Your love comes into our lives and it doesn't ignore any of our doubts, any of our struggles, any of our shortcomings, any of our pain. Your love is here. Your love promises us your salvation. We shall see it. We shall taste it. And yet your love goes beyond us. It's a love that freely stretches out to the ends of the earth. And Lord, instead of being jealous, all we can say is praise the Lord. May the whole earth know the same love that we know in Jesus Christ. This is our prayer. Amen.